0: And
1: I'm TJ Stedman.
0: And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, coming to you from sunny Western Australia.
1: It's another fascinating episode
0: of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, and we are just getting started in our exploration of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Today we're tackling day one of creation.
1: That's right. So far we've introduced the primeval history as the prequel of Scripture, We took a look at other creation stories from the ancient Near East. We talked about beginnings and the ancient conception of existence and nothingness. We talked about the point being made by the author's choice to refer to God as Elohim. We're finally getting into creation now and to begin this episode, we'll read the text from Genesis 1 verses 3 to 5 from the NIV. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now verse 3 actually concludes the first sentence of the Hebrew Bible. This should tell us that the interpretation of 1 verse 1 as the title is an invention. Look at other ancient Near Eastern texts. They don't have a title. Their first words are used by readers as a title, because that's how they become known. The Enuma Elish is another example. That's not a title. It's the first three words and it translates to when on high. If we did that with Genesis in English, it would be called when began God. Well, that's enough grammar. So we have here the moment of commencement of a period of creation. As we said in previous episodes, 1 verse 1 does not conclude an instantaneous creation. It introduces a process. And the beginning of that process is found here in 1 verse 3. The text of scripture opens with the word of God to bring light upon his creation. It's taken us a month to get here, but now things are starting and we can talk about what God is doing instead of only what he is being or what things were like at the start. We've already seen that there were things in material existence before this initial spoken word. The earth, the wilderness, the waters of the deep, the darkness. These are assumed to be there already from a material perspective, However, the functional ontology of the ancient mind views the text as describing a state of non-existence and a means of communicating that all this, functionally speaking, was in itself nothing. But now, God speaks, and the creation responds. God says, let light be, and light is. What the text does not say is that God made the light.
0: So God didn't create light?
1: God controls it, we can say that much, but the purpose of this text is not to explain where it comes from. Naturally, that's all we want to focus on because we're materialistic in today's culture and we're desperate to affirm and defend God's sovereignty. But where does the light come from is the wrong question. Even who made the light is wrong. This text doesn't say that. We know that God made all things. We know He is pre-existent and eternal. We know that all things were brought into being and are sustained by his power, but that's not what this text says. When you start talking about that stuff, you get off the point. The right question is, why is God talking about light?
0: Okay, so let me ask the right question. Why is God talking about light? That's a great (laughs) question. Thanks for asking that question.
1: Given what we looked at before about functionality, we should understand then that this command isn't the material creation of light, it is a call to function. The light was there, out of view, out of focus, without purpose or relevance. Now God says, let there be. Now that's passive, it's not forceful. God is allowing, not demanding. He's not pushing, he's not making. The light was coming anyway. God is giving the light meaning and purpose. The light has a function, a job to do. God has a plan.
0: Right, so putting aside the question of material origin, we are learning that this text is all about purpose. That means the light must be useful for some particular purpose, for some particular thing. So what is it for? What is the light?
1: Well, when we ask about what it is or what it's for, we're asking the same question because existence is defined by function. But there were many ways that light was used to describe different concepts. So first we need to work out what the author means when he mentions light. When ancient people spoke about light, often they were talking about the power of sight. If you went blind, they would say your eyes were dim, or the light of your eyes had gone out. That's one way to talk about light. Another use of light is wisdom, truth, or understanding. To have wisdom was to have light. Light was also spoken of as life, or the state of being alive. And in a purely physical sense, light was, of course, the brightness of the sun. So in what sense are we speaking of light when we read 1 verse 3, and we still don't know what it does or what it's for? God separated the light from the darkness. Now this is an interesting action. You know when you enter a room and you turn on the light, the, the room illuminates, there's no longer any darkness. How can you separate light from darkness? Perhaps if the light moved behind a solid object that might be obscured and then there could be darkness on the opposite side from the light. So, what's going on here? God is pleased with what he's done because it says God saw that it was good. This contrasts with the darkness, which was not said to be good. But what is it? The answer to all these questions comes in verse 5. God called the light, what? Vision? Wisdom? Life? Brightness? No, he called it, day and correspondingly he called the darkness night and the best way to describe those things those intangible immaterial things is as periods of time
0: so we're not just talking about three dimensional stuff here time is kind of like a fourth dimension is that right
1: well sort of time and space are probably best thought of as a single construct on two separate axes rather than uh, separate things. They, they don't exist independently of one another anyway, but even in the ancient mind, they were inseparable. They were one. They, they had different functions. but They worked together. Now, day is a period of time in which there is light. Night is the period of time in which there is darkness. So this light that God spoke of, it isn't really about creating light as, as if light had never existed. It's about establishing the basis of time. It's about God declaring that this passage of time, marked by light and darkness, is going to be the foundational unit by which things are going to be ordered. This is the start of something truly awesome. When we stop to think about the way that The day began with darkness turning to light. Perhaps we can understand why we're told about evening followed by morning as marking the passage of a day. And now it makes sense why the Jewish day begins in the evening. But now for the real question. Forget all the rest. What we really want to know here is why the Hebrew text doesn't say the first day. It says one day
0: interesting not the first day minds are being blown
1: that's right rather than the ordinal term first the cardinal number one is used Hebrew doesn't have numerals they write words that represent the numbers after day one the days continue as ordinals second third etc note also that this one day lacks the definite article it's not the one day or the first day It's simply one day. The statement one day does some interesting things. It sets in stone for us the definition of a day. We have that 24 hour period from evening through morning and back. It's defined by light, not light sources. It also makes a statement about the definitive nature of that day. It's going to become an important point of reference later on. Now this is vitally important because the text had already dealt a blow against the nations like Babylon that believe in their gods who arise from the deep or from the land by declaring that this god came first. It belittled the gods of Egypt by showing that this god can speak and make the universe respond. And now it deals a death blow to those inhabitants of the wilderness who claim that their gods, as sun and more importantly moon, other sources of light. and They have to come and go every day. The text shows that God defines order and this is the beginning of our textual understanding of God. Forget the philosophy and the theology. There's time for that later after we understand the text. For now, we can agree with Job's friend when he says that God is a God of order. Job 25 verse 2 from the NIV Dominion and awe belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. And we've also got Isaiah 28 verse 26 from the CSB this time. I like the way it's worded in the CSB. His God teaches him order, he instructs him. Now this text in Genesis is also an invitation to count the days that will follow. When somebody says one, we naturally want to continue. We expect to hear two and three and so on. It's building expectation. And it's a reminder that just as this text doesn't say that God created light, it also doesn't say that he created time. This isn't the first day. That's why it doesn't say it's the first day. It's one day. One of several more to come in this process of creation. Again, you don't say one if there are no more days, otherwise you would just say, well, that was the day. We're still in anticipation because nothing's actually been created so far if we're talking about material creation. You might be starting to get a sense at this point that creation as we understand it in the modern West might be different to what creation meant in the ancient Near East. But before you send me your sternly worded emails, just take a moment to consider this question that I have for you. Outside of Genesis 1... What is your basis for understanding that God did actually cause the material world to exist? Now that's not a hypothetical. There are real answers in scripture and you need to have them, even if only to satisfy modern intellectual concerns. But maybe the first chapter of this theology book we call the Bible isn't about where stuff comes from. Just a thought. I feel like I'll have to say this a million times and people still won't get it, but again, Just to be clear, so far we've seen that the text of Genesis 1 does not say that God caused the material existence of the earth, the waters, the wilderness, the darkness, the light, or even time itself. In a material sense, God hasn't made any of these things according to this text.
0: But that's not to say that God did not cause all of this to exist materially. Right. The point here is that you need to draw these conclusions from elsewhere in Scripture, though, not from Genesis 1.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. It's it's like when I was a kid and went to primary school across the road from my house. If anyone had asked me how to get to school, I would have said, well, you, you just go across the road. But it's not that simple. Across the road was a park, like a public green space. You know, there were pine logs set up as a border around the park. On the far side of the park was the school oval at the rear of the school. So... When I went to school, I was crossing the road, walking through the park, and getting into the school from the back. Now, that's fine for me as a little kid, but put me as as an adult in the same situation and ask me how to drive to school, I'm not going to give you the same answer. As an adult, to get there, I have to drive out of my street, go around the block, go to the front of the school, go in by the front. If I get in my car and go the way my six-year-old self would explain it, I'll end up breaking my car and getting arrested. Now it might have been sufficient to get me there as a kid, but now that I'm grown up I need to get there properly. As a kid, I didn't even know there was a road at the front of the school. I certainly couldn't have told you how to get there. As an adult, I realised that it's no longer okay for me to cross the road, the park and the school oval and sneak in the back. That's kind of what many evangelicals today have done with creation. We skipped across the road and through Genesis 1 because it seemed obvious to us in our from our cultural perspective, that this was the right way to get to the idea that God made everything materially. We get a bit older and we realise that this isn't how everybody gets to school. Then we start to understand that there are actually other ways to get to school and the way that I was getting there originally is no longer legitimate for me because now that I'm older, I see that there's a number of problems with getting there that way. That doesn't leave me without alternatives to accessing that truth. It just means that I have to loosen my grip on the only way that I knew and trust a responsible approach will still get me to the same place. Now, don't think that the text diminishes God by not having Him bring matter out of a vacuum. And just see how God spoke, and both time and space responded. See how God alone has power and authority to bring order to the cosmos. This is the majesty of the text. It's not some human contrivance aimed at forcing modern science into an ancient theological and metaphysical masterpiece. We should stand in awe as the text of scripture destroys the gods of the nations one by one. Watch as everything goes from chaos and nothingness into order and beauty and delight. We worship the God that invites the light to shine on his creation, not one who beats it into submission. We worship one who needs only speak and the universe obeys. This is our God. He doesn't need the cosmos or anything in it. When he speaks and says let there be light, it's according to his good pleasure. The light responds and he is pleased. The light wasn't necessary for God. It was what he wanted. He had a purpose in mind for this light and he used it to delineate time at its most basic level. And that wasn't for his own benefit because he doesn't need it. He did that for you and me and every living thing that was to come.
0: Great stuff as always. Next week we're going to explore day two and answer the question What is the firmament? One of those words you don't hear often outside of a Bible study, but for now we're going to take a deeper dive into the contents of answers to giant questions. So buckle up, you can jump on Amazon now and grab yourself a copy if you haven't already, which I highly recommend that you do.
1: There's an abundance of tradition that speaks of the region north of Galilee as a place of spiritual darkness and evil. The northern regions of the known world were always considered to be a bad place in the Hebrew mind. This was due in large part to the fact that the geography of Israel meant that any invading army would have to come from the north to get access to the land. Even when Babylon invaded, and despite their southeastern location, they came from the north to get around the Dead Sea and the desolate Negev to the south. The north had long had an association with evil, and not only on a human level. The north was the location of the mountain of Baal, Baal and of course the geographical centre of evil, Mount Hermon. I've mentioned a lot of this in my book and I'll go into some detail there, but what I didn't spend time on was a place called Beth Rehob, Or if you prefer uh, in uh, Hebrew it would have been closer to uh, Bet Rehov. I'm not real good at that. Now you'll find only a couple of references specifically to Beth Rehob, because most of the time it is just called Rehob. A quick word search will bring up a bunch of references, but some are associated with people who have Rehob in their name. According to Judges 18, it is the general area in which the Danites destroy the city known as Laish, which they later rebuilt as the city of Dan. We remember the tribe of Dan from the prophetic words of the patriarch Jacob in Genesis 49 and verse 17. In the NIV it says, Dan will be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path, that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backward. You might be familiar with the association of the tribe of Dan with all kinds of bad stuff. It's the tribe that Samson comes from, the tribe that the Antichrist is rumoured to come from, one of two tribes omitted from a list of faithful tribes in Revelation, a tribe known for their apostasy and idolatry, which you know if you've read Judges 18. This land that they took in Laish was part of the land that the tribe of Asher was supposed to conquer under Joshua, but they failed to drive out the inhabitants in the conquest. So the people living there, despite their portrayal as innocent and unsuspecting villagers in the book of Judges, uh, they're not good. And rather than wipe them out to bring in the worship of Yahweh, it seems the Danites were bringing gods of their own. The Sidonians, of whom the city of Laish were a distant outpost, of long had associations with giants via the Phoenicians. But the Sidonians were too far away to help Laish when the Danites invaded. Laish is an interesting location because it's had so many names over the years. It became Dan, as we know, and as such, it formed part of the region of Bethrehob. This same area was also known as Paneus to the Greeks, Banias to the Arabs. Paneus is known for its location at the base of Mount Hermon and particularly for a stream at the foot of the mount which once flowed year-round from the melting snow coming down from above. The stream emerged from a cave in the cliff face, running down to the south and becoming one of the major tributaries of the Jordan River. In a sense, it could be called the Fountain of the Jordan. That cave was known as the Grotto of Pan, named after the Greek god who was known for a wide variety of phenomena. Paneus also had another name. In the time of the Roman Tetrarch Philip, the place was called Caesarea Philippi. The worship of Pan and also of Zeus continued there for many years. Now, I wrote about this, and others have as well. Caesarea Philippi is the place from which Jesus ascended a mountain, most likely Hermon, to be transfigured. In that location, he told Peter that it was upon this rock that he would build his church, and that the gates of hell would not be able to withstand it. Now why did Jesus mention the gates of hell? Because the region extending from Hermon in the north to the Arnon River in the south, extending as far west as the Sea of Galilee, was known as Bashan, or in Ugaritic as Batan, the place of the serpent, the earth of the Rephaim, the hell of the dead giants. And the entrance to this hell was the cave at the foot of Hermon, the gates of hell. Now some dots might be starting to connect here. We have Beth Rehob at the base of Hermon, the tribe of Dan, connections to the Rephaim, the grotto of Pan, the source of the Jordan, Caesarea Philippi, the gates of hell. You know how in Hebrew texts were written without vowels? Well, what happens if we write Rehob without the vowels? We get the same root, from which we get Rahab. Remember Rahab, the prostitute who assisted the Israelite spies as they crossed the Jordan to spy out Jericho? Rahab, which also happens to be one name of the chaos monster, better known as Leviathan. And if you've read my work, you know that her name isn't an accident. It is intended to signal the fact that God is turning chaos upon itself to bring about his victory. What if Beth Rehob isn't supposed to be house of the street, as it usually gets translated. Could it be the home of Leviathan? The house of Rahab? Well, that sure fits perfectly with every other association we've been able to make with this place. The watchers descended on Hermon, according to First Enoch, causing the rebellion of Genesis 6, and in the base of that very mountain which Jesus called the gates of hell, Rahab lay concealed in a cave, hiding behind the identities of countless gods and goddesses, accepting human sacrifices and leading countless devotees away from God. Don't forget also that it was on the nearby eastern shore of Galilee that the demoniac known as Legion was delivered. Again, if you've read my work, you'll know about the many connections to Leviathan that that story evokes. As I argue in the book, that act of deliverance basically thwarted Leviathan in a preemptive strike that enabled the transfiguration to take place, which served as a provocation to the forces of evil that prompted the crucifixion. Basically, Jesus came to the house of rehab and kicked the hornet's nest. Maybe we'll talk more about hornets another time.
0: Well, it's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of TJ's book, Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or on Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that that will help. But a full review is better. And certainly very, very much appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast, wherever you found us, so that new listeners can find us here on the show. And in the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also on the lookout for your testimonies about how you have found the content answers to giant questions to be helpful. And or useful of course this podcast comes out every week you want to make sure you never miss an episode so if you haven't already subscribed please do that now and you'll get notified when every new episode drops and that's all we have time for today we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast
1: thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show Music supplied under copyright of Brave Forsaken, braveforsaken.com. If you can get the book answers to giant questions, like PJ Stedman Amazon, and that, that, Check out the other podcasts at bravercredsstink.com or giantanswers.com or giant questions. Read the Red blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the friends of the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to the podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe. God bless.